Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From the Ringer Podcast Network, listen to Gamblers Season 2 on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. A couple of days after the Patriots go one and one to begin the season. So they're back to 500 as they get ready for the Baltimore Ravens, of course, coming up this Sunday. And there's still a lot of question marks surrounding this team and the offense. And look, I don't want to be negative about this team completely because they won a game that they needed to win. You can't minimize that in the NFL. If this team was 0-2 right now, we would be shitting all over it. It would be a disaster here. It would be panic time with the Patriots and with the Patriots fan base. So it's good they got in the win column but there's still a lot of things that you're questioning about this team and we'll get into a lot of them rather with Ted Johnson from NBC Sports Boston in just a little bit but just some things that have been jumping out to me about the offense and some really startling numbers if you will I saw this yesterday from Seth Wilder from ESPN Stats and Info the Patriots are using motion 4.3% of the time that is dead last in the NFL. They are motioning less than any team across the league. And it makes sense to use that because it paints the picture and it makes it a little bit easier for the quarterback. And the Patriots are not digging into that at all. And if you look at the top three teams in that, the Dolphins are number one at 45.2%. Their quarterback, Tua, just threw for 429 yards and six touchdowns. The Ravens are second in the NFL. They're motioning 35.2% of the time. They're averaging 31 points per game, which is six in the NFL. And they just had an outstanding offensive day against the Miami Dolphins. Now, not so much with their defense. We'll get into that later on in the week when we get ready for that matchup. But nonetheless, the Bills are third in the NFL. They're motioning 35.1% of the time. They're unstoppable. 36 points per game. So it would seem like this type of stuff is working across the league. Why are the Patriots dead last in motion? It makes no sense that they're not using any of this stuff. Because I think the two biggest principles to having a successful offense in the NFL is you have to have a scheme advantage in some way, shape, or form. And you have to have personnel advantages, right? I mean, you look at the Brady era. They had 
Gronk, they had Moss, they had Welker, they had Edelman, all guys that were advantages from a personnel standpoint. And they had Brady orchestrating the offense, which really gave you a scheme advantage as well because he could see everything happening before the play was going to occur. Right now, you have a second-year quarterback and the personnel's not that great. So you have to do some things schematically that help out the quarterback. And it just seems like the Patriots, for whatever reason, aren't doing that. I mean, one of the things that jumps out to me is two is having all this success under Mike McDaniel, first-year head coach, comes off the Kyle Shanahan tree, and the Patriots wanted to use a lot of the Kyle Shanahan elements to the offense. They really haven't used a ton of them so far this season, but the play-action game, that's a huge staple of the Shanahan offense, and the Patriots don't use it whatsoever, right? I mean, you look at it so far this season. Tua, 34 passing attempts out of play-action. Mac is at seven. So Mike McDaniel is helping his quarterback with the scheme. Now, Tua's also getting help from his playmakers, Tyreek Hill, who's been incredible for them, and Jalen Waddell had a really big game on Sunday as well. So they have the personnel and the scheme. Right now, it seems like the Patriots don't have either one of those, right? And another thing is this, and I feel like sometimes we get a little bit too sensitive with the quarterback, and I'll get into a lot of this has to do with the scheme, but also it's okay to acknowledge when Max sucks, and Max sucked last Sunday, right? Because I feel like it's it's such an aggravating thing in the fan base where anytime you criticize Mac Jones... Well, you're a hater. You don't like Mac, blah, blah, blah. And I do find it funny because people can hammer on the Celtics all the time, right? I mean, Jason Tatum, people are hammering him going back to the bubble. People are killing Tatum. And look, Tatum was not good in the finals. I acknowledge that. But that team was two wins away from a championship. We criticize that team all the time. And Mac Jones has a bad game and you acknowledge it. It doesn't mean if you say Mac Jones played poorly, it doesn't mean that you think Mac Jones is going to fucking suck for the rest of his career and that Mac Jones is a bust. You're just acknowledging what happened on Sunday. And I don't understand why so many people in the fan base get so defensive if you criticize the quarterback. I mean, it was okay to criticize Tom at times, and it's not okay to criticize Mac. It's just flooring to me that there is so many people that are so quick to defend Mac Jones when if you watch the game on Sunday, he did not play particularly well. So here's another interesting thing to me about Mac and something he needs to get better at. And this is not a Patricia thing. This is not a scheme thing. This is a Mac thing. And look, there's some things maybe that we can find that can help Mac out with this. But do you realize Mac Jones for the past two years has been, I guess, two years and two games or one year and two games has been horrible against the Blitz. Mac Jones this season has a 41.1 rating when blitzed. He's 8 of 17, 47.1%. Okay, that 41.1 rating against the Blitz is last amongst qualified quarterbacks. So nobody has been worse against the Blitz this season than Mac Jones. Last year, he wasn't good either. The completion percent dropped dramatically when he was blitzed compared to when he wasn't blitzed. And the reason this is important is because the Ravens, only two teams have blitzed more than them this season in terms of total blitzes, the Cardinals and the Lions. So that's something that if I know this, the Ravens know this, we saw the Steelers knew this, Miami knew this in week one, and teams are going to heat up Mac Jones. Only one quarterback had more dropbacks out of blitz last year because Mac Jones has not proven that he can beat the blitz. You just look at it in terms of pressure in general. Mac has been really bad. Four for 12, and I get it small sample size, but he was not particularly great against pressure last year either. Zero touchdowns, one interception. Mac Jones's passer rating when pressured this season is 14.6. Not 44.6 or 54.6, 
14.6. You have 21 quarterbacks in the NFL that have been pressured at least 10 times. The only quarterback with a worse rating than Mac when it comes to that is Matt Ryan. So this isn't just about the coaching and the playmakers and blah, blah, blah. Mac Jones has got to be better when he's blitzed. And here's the thing, and when he's pressured in general, Mac Jones has been protected. I mean, one of the big things we talked about in the offseason is, hey, is the offensive line going to take a step back without Shaq Mason? And look, they've picked up a lot of careless penalties and all that. And I know that you had, of course, the sack fumble in the first game of the season. But if you just look at the totality of the first two games, Mac has been pretty well protected. 17 dropbacks he's been pressured on. That's 24th of the NFL. And if you look at just the percentage, 23.9, it's actually better than that. 32nd of the NFL, okay? Only Marcus Mariota and Tom Brady have been pressured less than Mac Jones. So Mac Jones has really got to figure out some way to handle pressure better. It's really been alarming to watch because you would figure this is a guy that can play fast, etc. Well, that has not been the case because if you look at this, Mac Jones less than two and a half seconds, right? So this should be where Mac thrives, right? Mac is a quick decision maker, gets the ball out quick. This is where Mac should be at his best, right? And he's not being pressured a lot, right? But if you look at it in terms of getting the ball out quickly, two and a half seconds or less, he's 16 of 27 this year, 59.3%. That's 22nd the NFL. Out of the 23 quarterbacks with at least 25 dropbacks prior to last night in terms of two and a half seconds or less, only Jared Goff is worse in terms of the completion percentage. Mack among those 23 quarterbacks has the worst rating at 63. And this is the thing that's kind of puzzling to you and it makes you scratch your head. Wait, Mac Jones isn't good when he gets rid of the ball quickly? Because last year he was really good in these situations. In fact, he completed almost 77% of his passes and he's at 59.3% this year. That number last year, 76.6% was better than Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, and Joe Burrow. His rating under two and a half seconds, 102.6 last year, that was better than Josh Allen and Justin Herbert. So even the things that Mac was doing well last year, he's not doing well through the first two weeks of the season. And I understand this offense, it just looks disjointed at times. There's no rhythm whatsoever. Everything, every yard they gain, it looks like a project outside of the final drive of the game, which was the best drive of the game for the Patriots from my perspective all season long because they just ran out the clock with the run. So there's definitely schematic things they can do to help Mac. Like, how about a little bit of a screen game? Mac's thrown five screen passes all season long. That's something that could help him against the blitz that he struggles against and hopefully get him better in terms of getting ready the ball quickly. But we just have to acknowledge when the quarterback doesn't play well, it's okay okay to say that. And these numbers against the Blitz, when he's pressured, even getting the ball out quickly, Mac has been bad in all areas so far this season. And then the other, other, other issue, we talk about scheme, but we also talk about personnel, right? Mac has not been helped sort of after the catch. There hasn't been a lot of layups in the offense, and a lot of that goes on the quarterback because he's missing open receivers, but it also goes on the scheme and the personnel, right? So Mac has just 173 yards after the completion through the after a completion through the first two games. Okay. 21st in the NFL out of the 29 that had started two games up until now. Tua is first at 338. So to a 303 yards after the completion, Mac is 173. Again, that comes back to scheme and that comes back to personnel. The Patriots right now, they don't have a guy that's doing a ton after the catch. The one guy that has is Aguilar, 64 yards. That's 26 of the NFL. So they have got to figure out a way to get their best players on the field. And that's been an issue really going back to the preseason in week one. Because one thing that is happening, and we'll get into this with Ted Johnson in a little bit, is they're getting nothing out of Devontae Parker, right? So if you look at entering last night, the 17 receivers who lined up wide at least 50 times, Parker is one of those 17. He has the fewest receiving yards, nine, and he has the fewest receptions, one. 
So why is he playing all these snaps if you're getting no production from the player? If you just juxtapose Parker and Bourne, Parker 109 snaps, Bourne 26 snaps, yet Bourne's the more productive player. So they have got to figure out a way to just acknowledge the fact that the Parker thing's not working. Bourne had a really good on-field chemistry with Mac last year. Let's just play the best players. And this is something that we're going to continue to monitor all season long. And I would expect those numbers go up for Bourne again, because when Bourne was on the field in limited action, he was better again than Parker was. Parker's not getting better. I know he talks about this whole thing. It's going to take time and chemistry. They don't have fucking time. They don't have time to make sure it works with Devontae Parker. This isn't one of the guys that's one of the best receivers in the NFL. It's a guy that Miami didn't want anymore. So they don't need to work this out with Devontae Parker. Just play the best players. The other thing is the tight ends, who we talked about them a little bit on Sunday. I'm really interested to see what they get out of these guys going forward because it's been essentially nothing. Five receptions on the season. And Jonu Smith is a decent blocker, but Hunter Henry's a bad blocker. He was a bad blocker last year by how he graded out. Smith was okay. I think he's better than the grades that he got last year. I mean, you look at his grades last year, 42.5 run block grade from Pro Football Focus, 51.9 pass block grade. He can block. I mean, obviously, he's a big guy. Hunter Henry can't. I mean, he can't block. So he's really useless unless he's in there to go out there and make a play offensively. But He doesn't really look like the same guy so far this year when he's been out there. So what are you going to get out of your tight ends is a real question going forward for this team. I just look at where the Patriots are at in terms of the skill players. And I look at, let's just get the best three weapons on the field, right? That means Myers, Nelson Aguilar, and Kendrick Bourne. To me, those are your three best playmakers, right? You look at Aguilar has been outstanding this season. You look at him just against man coverage. Five targets, five receptions, four first downs, 107 yards, and a 158.3 passer rating when targeted. So, I mean, he's basically the perfect guy to throw to against man coverage. And I get it small sample size, but this is something that they've done a really good job moving him around. He's lined up in the slot a lot more than he was in terms of a percentage standpoint from where he was a year ago. He had that ridiculous touchdown grab. So Aguilar something where last year it looked like, okay, that may be a horrible contract. But you're getting something out of Aguilar this season, so continue to dig into that. Myers is off to a better start than even last year, and he had a good year from a raw numbers perspective, but 13 receptions on 19 targets, 11.5 yards per reception. That's up from 10.4. And the biggest thing about Myers, more so than anything else, any number that you can throw out with Myers, Mac trusts him. Mac trusts Jacoby Myers is going to be open. That's why Jacoby Myers continues to be targeted. So that is sort of, remember last year we were debating whether or not it was Henry or Myers. Myers is the safety blanket. So Aguilar is sort of a big play threat. Then you have Myers, who is really consistent. And then Kendrick Bourne, that's the third guy. See, that's what I just don't understand about this whole Patriots philosophy and all that. I just want my three best weapons on the field for the quarterback because The guy that's getting hurt the most in all of this is the quarterback. That's who it's affecting. When you're not playing the right guys, the guy that looks the worst right now out of the, in terms of the concerns, is the quarterback. Now, I still have a lot of stock in Mac long term. I believe he's going to be a good player. But how does it not irritate you that the best offensive weapons aren't always on the field for the Patriots? And they really have to figure out what they're doing with Hunter Henry because I I don't know what's gone on with him through the first two games. I mean, we can talk about Johnny and the contract, et cetera, going back to last year. But Hunter Henry has given this team absolutely nothing because when he's not catching the ball, he cannot block. And then the personnel stuff. And I just wonder if this part is part of the equation. And we'll talk to Ted Johnson about this. But you think about some of the guys that have been getting playing time. Parker, he was 
part of the offseason plan where Patricia was involved in that trade. Ty Montgomery is a guy they picked up in the offseason this year. Now, I understand he's injured right now, but 21 snaps, remember Montgomery played in week one compared to Ramondre Stevenson, which is 14. So you do wonder if there's a little bit of that with Matt Patricia where they're too invested in moves they made in the offseason rather than everything has got to be dictated by, hey, how does this guy help Mac Jones? And so far, we're seeing too many guys play that aren't helping Mac Jones. And in fact, in the case of Devontae Parker, he's not even, it's not even that he's not helping him. He's actively hurting Mac because Mac Jones, when he throws to Devontae Parker, 50% of the targets this year have been intercepted. So they have got to figure out a way to get this hierarchy, get this food chain more organized because right now, we're watching this as fans, and we can tell it doesn't make sense. Why are the Patriots continue to trot out this guy? All right, a lot more to get into. We'll chat with Ted Johnson from NBC Sports Boston and 98.5 The Sports Hub in just a little bit here. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, Ted Johnson from NBC Sports Boston. You hear him after the Patriots games. You also hear him on 98.5, the Sports Hub as well, and a three-time Super Bowl champ. Ted, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Brian, of course, man. My pleasure. Good to be with you, bud. Yeah, and so it was an interesting game on Sunday. It was not the most aesthetically pleasing game to watch, Ted. And the biggest thing that jumped out to me in that game is I thought Mac Jones played really poorly. What did you make of Mac's performance on Sunday? He did. He did, Brian. It's, uh, and, and that's what we're all, we're all trying to figure out. How, uh, you know, how, how do we evaluate in, uh, the, uh, the performance so far of Mac Jones? Because let's, let's face it, it, it hasn't been good. Um, but when you, when you factor in a lot of the things that happened uh, this offseason and training camp and preseason uh, with the changing of coaches, the new, uh, new scheme, if you will, that's been – everybody's been talking about this new offensive system that's being put in. It's going to impact the quarterback, uh, and it, it has in a, in a negative way. So it's hard to evaluate him, particularly coming off of last year's performance, Brian. You know where he he was at such a promising rookie campaign. You're thinking, you're well, they're going to build on that momentum. At least he is uh, going into the second year, and because of the, uh, I think the, the changes in coaches and scheme, and I think even philosophies. Um, you're you're seeing a, a quarterback that right now has got a little bit of a crisis of confidence. He wasn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, isn't playing as well as maybe we all anticipated one in his second year. And so the point, the point I'm trying to make at the end of the day is I'm not so sure he's getting all the help he needs to, uh, to play his best. And so it's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to kind of judge uh, what he's doing. It is interesting, Brian, if you listen to Mac Jones comments earlier in the week, he, he will give you these verbal breadcrumbs. He will give you, he will give you hints and clues into, how he's thinking and it feels as if they are they they want him to throw up more of these quote-unquote 50-50 balls to guys and so he's gotten in trouble the first two weeks he's thrown two interceptions both of the interceptions um, were intended for Devonte parker where he was covered on both plays he's kind of leading us to believe in some of the comments he made earlier this week that he is being coached to throw up the ball even if they're covered 
and that uh, you know that, that the, the coaches are encouraging him to throw throw the deep ball uh, into coverage because they want their receivers to go up and, and catch the ball, and, and it worked in this uh, in the, you know right before halftime in this Pitts, last Pittsburgh game, they threw the ball up to Nelson Aguilar, he went up, caught it, and it scored a touchdown. So. It's um, we're trying to read between the lines. That's what we do here in Boston, trying to figure out how, how, uh, you know, how Mac is being uh, handled. Um, and he seems a little bit frustrated maybe with these new philosophies and new schemes and new coaches, but uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. It's uh, it's too kind of early to tell maybe I think and have a judgment on, on what Mac Jones is. A lot of people think, you know, he is what he is. I'm not so sure that's the case uh, yet. I still think there's a lot of good football left in him. I'm just, we're not seeing it right now. Well, Ted, I would be frustrated, too, if I was Mac Jones, because I don't understand. And it's a good point about like he's being coached to throw these 50-50 balls. I don't get the fascination with Devontae Parker, especially considering we know what Bourne did last year. And whenever Bourne's on the field, it seems like he's pretty productive. So what do you think it is? Is this more about Bourne or do you think this is? And Ted, I know like going back to the offseason, remember Matt Patricia, they gave him a ton of credit for being heavily involved in the Devontae Parker trade. So do you think part of that is Patricia's playing favorites with a guy that he was credited for bringing in? You know what, Brian? Yeah, I do. I, you know, it's funny. A lot of people think, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not maybe, you know, that, uh, I don't know, politics, back office politics. Does that really go on in the NFL? They aren't the best players playing? Like, no, that isn't, that isn't always the case. So I think it's a little bit of Matt Patricia, like you, you mentioned, is, is a Devontae Parker guy, if you will. That was his guy. He was like... I mean, it, I think it was uh, Matt Groh, the director of player personnel, who said after uh, the signing of Devontae Parker that it was, quote-unquote, a, a Matty P uh, decision kind of thing. And so it feels as if Devontae Parker is his guy and that Kendrick Bourne, I'm hearing reports, Brian, that he was a Josh McDaniels guy. And now we all know Josh McDaniels moved on to Las Vegas. So so the uh, the you know the pecking order, if you will, is is has shifted and that Kendrick Bourne has been kind of relegated to the bottom of the bench in which in Devontae Parker, just because Matt Patricia, quote unquote, discovered him or signed him or had interest in getting him signed, he's been elevated to uh, number one wide receiver. And here's the thing. He's got, well, I mean, I think he's got over like 104 snaps so far in the first two games, comparatively speaking to that of, of, a, of a Kendrick Bourne, who's got about 26 snaps. The problem is Kendrick Bourne's been more productive in those 26 snaps <laughs> than Devontae Parker has in his 100. I think uh, – uh, he's got one catch, Devontae Parker, on four pass attempts in over in these 100 plays, and I think uh, Kendrick Bourne's got a, a three catches um, in the 26 snaps. So clearly, when Kendrick Bourne comes in the game, you see Mac Jones goes right to him right away, almost trying to send a message. I think Brian to the coaching, like when this guy gets in here, good things will happen. And so that's an interesting thing to watch with this team because buy-in has been a question. Um, uh, a big question and big topic of discussion this this preseason and training camp. And right now it seems a little bit uh, on, on shaky ground as far as some of the buy-in goes. And it's because uh, players like Kendrick Bourne who just doesn't seem satisfied with their role on this team and other guys, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. 
Yeah, and even too like Bourne, it should be four catches on four targets. If Mac didn't throw that ball way over his head, he was wide open. And you do see Ted when he's on the field, he brings a ton of energy. Like he ripped that ball out of the air the other day. You could see him after he picks up the first down. And Devontae Parker is just he's out there. And to your point, he's really doing nothing. So at what point does Bill have to step in and say, hey, we got to start playing the best players? We, of course, saw the Tommy Kern report that Kraft wants to see more of Kendrick Bourne. At one point, did they just look in the mirror and say, hey, Parker's not giving us what we need. Why are we so committed to playing this guy when it's not he had one really good season in Miami? It's not like you brought over Antonio Brown. This is Devontae Parker. I just don't understand it. Well, I think it goes always goes down to Bill Belichick's biggest weakness. What is this? What is this, What does it come down to with Bill Belichick? You will hear me probably say nine times out of 10 is hubris, arrogance, or um, ego. And that usually is kind of what I think gets Bill in trouble. So, you know, whatever happened with Kendrick Bourne, something happened in the offseason. Uh, speculation is that Kendrick Bourne was outspoken about the new shift in, in uh, offensive philosophy, that he doesn't like his coaches, that he wanted basically to get out of New England and go somewhere else because he could see the writing on the wall that he was uh, maybe being relegated, uh, you know, now that they brought Devontae Parker in and he won out. And so that has put him in the proverbial doghouse. And so Bill's trying to make a point with that player, but in spite of, you know, kind of winning football games. And that is, that's kind of a Bill Belichick thing. You know, you, we can, you know, it's interesting, you know, you got Bill Belichick kind of putting it on Matt Patricia as to why Kenner Bourne isn't playing. It's like, that's a Patricia thing. Yet everything else he's saying, blame me, blame me, blame me. <laughs> it's all comes down to Bill Belichick. Bill doesn't want Kenner Bourne out there for whatever reason. Maybe he was too outspoken. Maybe he gave too much information about the new changes and schemes and philosophies on offense. And that, and that uh, upset Bill. The problem is it's not being communicated to the player. I don't think Kendrick Bourne has any idea why he's been relegated. Um, and they don't tell you that. And so he's still trying to get out of the doghouse. They're trying to make a point, uh, I think, to Kendrick Bourne. But, you know, don't do it in spite of yourself and, and where you lose games. You know, kind of like the Malcolm Butler decision in the Super Bowl. It's like, don't cut off your nose to spite your face. That has always been an Achilles heel for Bill. Uh, but when Kendrick Bourne got, has gotten in there, he's made plays. Everybody sees it. We all know it. And I think there's just going to be pressure to get him out there more and more. Um, and clearly, if Devontae Parker's production is, is keeps continues on where, on where it's going, um, I mean, people will be clamoring to get his, to get his butt out of there. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it seems like there's more of a loyalty than to Patricia right now than there is to actually playing the best players that are on the football team, which is incredibly aggravating to watch. And you look at it too, Ted, one of the things you mentioned, like the scheme change, I'm wondering if Patricia is the one that sold Bill on that just because of the fact that they really didn't go looking for an offensive coordinator. I thought, okay, maybe Kaylee, maybe they think Kaylee's the next guy after Josh, like they think the guy is already here internally. Obviously, there was no real play for Bill O'Brien. Do you th- so do you think part of that, that zone running scheme they wanted to do, the wide zone scheme, that was something that Matt Patricia sold to Bill? It could be. It could be. It, you know, it's like, you know, I think, but I also think it's more of a Bill. Really, Brian, he's always had, I think, a ton of respect for Mike Shanahan. Mike Shanahan, you know, is the kind of the creator of this, the Shanahan offense, as they call it. Um, you know, when he was there in Denver with John Elway and Terrell Davis, those were those are some of our, our, our toughest games were against those Denver teams. So he has a ton of respect for, I think, for Mike Shanahan. And I think just this that offensive style um, uh, in way of doing things. 
I wouldn't be surprised if Matt, Matt Patricia was was on board with that because I will say this at the end of the day, Brian, the Shanahan system is kind of like coaching. Uh, it's painting by numbers for quarterbacks. It's a very simple offense, I think, to coach and to execute. You take a lot of the audible abilities away from the quarterback. You keep it very simple as far as what they, they do is uh, checks and reads. Um, it, it, I just think it's an easier offense to coach. And so my guess is that all, that was uh, probably appealing to, to Matt Patricia and to Bill Belichick. And it's also when you have 20 years of an offense that's been developed over time with Tom Brady, I mean, the playbook gets so big and so robust that it's hard to teach to new coaches. It's hard to teach to new players coming in. And so it's almost like they just needed to start over from uh, fresh and do a, a more simplistic uh, kind of offense and have a more simplistic of approach. It's just they're going through growing pains right now. And uh, it, it's just – it hasn't looked good all training camp. Now, they're not they, – they haven't shown much of this new offense in the first couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's just so bad that they don't want to unveil it. But and they can they can beat the Steelers, the you know the Pittsburgh Steelers of the world right now, doing it the way they're doing it with smoke and mirrors. But this week against Baltimore, Brian, whole different deal, man. So they got to figure out what you know what they're doing with this new offense. Uh, either totally ditch it or you know keep plowing ahead because right now where they're at, they're not going to win a lot of games. Yeah, and Ted, I was looking at this too. Like, I know that they haven't, they've been going back to a lot of the old stuff because it seems like that's the stuff that's been working. But just in terms of like implementing some of the Shanahan principles and whatnot, I look at like Tua with Miami, and it seems like the Patriots aren't digging into a lot of the stuff that Miami is. I was looking at the numbers. So Tua's attempted 34 passes in play action, Mac has attempted seven the entire season. So I, I don't really understand why they don't sort of dig into that low hanging fruit in the NFL, if you will. You, you hit it right on the head, Brian. Like last year, Mac Jones' numbers in play action were incredible. You have the Shanahan system, is, is so it's mirrored runs and mirrored passes. You want to make your passes look like they're runs, and it's off of – it's that zone run uh, scheme that, that they do so well, and then the play action off of it, and that allows your receivers to get better separation, bigger windows for the quarterback, simpler reads, and so it's just beneficial to everybody – um, in the in, in particularly in the in the play action game, the Patriots have no play action game. It's it's embarrassing. I mean, it's so simplistic. It's it's shocking how simplistic it is. So I just think the play action is 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 such a key part of what has been going on here for New England for 20 years that they got to get more committed to that zone run scheme so they can do the play action passes off of it because right now they're not fooling anybody just being back there and shotgun doing dropbacks. Um, they're not getting the benefit of having, uh, you know, uh, a play action game uh, for their quarterback or the receivers. Yeah. And what about so this injury to Montgomery? I feel like in and you feel awful for the player that he's injured because he battled back in training camp as well. But it may be good in a sense that this means, hey, maybe Ramondre Stevenson will be involved a little bit more in the passing game. But we didn't really see a whole lot of that. Now, he was out there on passing downs, but we didn't see him targeted a whole lot in that game. Do you think we'll see more of that going forward, at least maybe somewhat of a screen game for Max, some layups in the offense? Yeah, that's interesting because we're all trying to figure out who the, who's the third down back, right? Who, I mean, it, it's historically we know how it's been. You know, it's James White and then, you know, Kevin Falk. Um, I mean, we've had great, quote-unquote, third down backs, and it's always been a um, kind of its own little niche role, if you will. And right now, I don't know who our third down backs are. You know, they 
they have they they rotate. Damon Harris, Ramondre Stevenson. You mentioned Ty Montgomery. I think Bill was very very high on him. Um, and so they they don't have any proven running backs as far as that are that are that are skilled and accomplished pass catchers really on their team. And so that's another kind of role in in a curious decision that they. I don't know. I was I was surprised they let Brandon Bolden go last year uh, or this this past offseason, considering uh, how well he did filling in for James White last year. But uh, that's that's another head scratching decision uh, from the coaches where you go, why didn't they um, do a better job of replacing James White? They knew they had to know that his hip wasn't going to get uh, wasn't going to you know be, get better for this season. And sure enough, he retired. But um, again, another one of those uh, decisions on offense that you just wonder what were they thinking because. They don't have a, a quote-unquote third-down scat back on their roster, at least anybody that's been proven to do that job well. Yeah, and Ted, the offensive line obviously was criticized a lot during the offseason. There was a lot of drama with Trent Brown because he was getting paid like a right tackle instead of a left tackle. The Isaiah Wynn, the contract situation. I thought the only guy really that played poorly last week was probably Isaiah Wynn. I feel like the offensive line has played pretty well. The numbers would bear that out. And the rookie Cole Strange has been pretty impressive, even though that pick was crushing the offseason as well. What have you made of the line, Ted? So the line the line showed up in this last game. Like the, the, the line in the first game, not so good. There was, it was way too leaky, uh, way too many blown assignments. Now, the line was – it was a lot better based on just what we've seen all training camp and preseason. Was it great? No. I mean, there's still there, – there were still penalties on the offense, a lot of uh, false starts, um, you know, a lot of uh, holding penalties. And so they got to clean that up. But the offensive line, for the most part, they, find, they showed up in this game. But they kept it simple. They did the power running game, man-on-man stuff, not the zone. Um, and they wore the Steelers down. By far, their best performance all summer was against the Steelers. So, yeah, I know maybe they can build on that. And you have two disgruntled tackles. You mentioned Trent Brown's not happy with his contract. Isaiah Wynn's not happy with his. And so the, the only way you keep that kind of – that chatter down and those guys engaged – is by winning because if you don't win you start to hear kind of the problems and the cracks that are there in the foundation if you don't win those two guys if they if, if the patriots are winning they'll keep their mouths shut because they don't want to be the you know the reason why there's a distraction and maybe uh to, you know to screw them up so that's a, it's an interesting unit to kind of watch because there's big personalities that don't seem to be happy and and they're not playing well but i will say this in this last game against the steelers they showed up, man. You mentioned Curtis or Cole Strange, excuse me, the left guard. He was dominant in that game. He's not that big, but he plays big. Um, he had an excellent game. Really, the entire offensive line did. So I don't know what happened in one week's time, but they they looked like they were uh, they, they they were ready to go in that game. Can they continue that um, going forward? We'll see. And Ted, the defense, uh, they've been really good the first couple games as well. I mean, you look at what Miami just did to that Baltimore team and they went nuts. And I get it. It was Mike McDaniel's first game in week one. So maybe that's part of it. And Pittsburgh, it's Mitchell Trubisky. And we all know that guy sucks, they, but they do have weapons. So how do you kind of grade the Patriots defense through the first two games, considering we know the opponent was not good in the second game? Yeah, they're solid. The, the defense is solid. You know, it's not going to be a great dominating defense. It's just not – they don't have the the horses. And I don't think Bill wants – you know, Bill doesn't want to deal with divas on offense or our defense. So he, he just wants really, you know, guys that will uh, – are smart guys. You can see a shift in thinking, I think, Brian, as far as the personnel that they have out there. They have a lot of these 
bigger safeties, smaller linebacker types um, uh, that, that they have out there roaming the field, whether it's, you know, whether it's Peppers, whether it's Adrian Phillips, whether it's Kyle Duggar, um, Miles Bryant. These are all kind of like bigger DBs, smaller linebackers, Mac Wilson, Raekwon McMillan. There's so much more speed out there. And they're playing a lot of zone, so they're not playing much, as much man-to-man. You know, J.C. Jackson went uh, to uh, the Chargers in the offseason, one of your better man-to-man guys. Um, so I think they've made a more of a focus to zone playing, more zone defense. And so you need linebackers and you need DBs that are fast and they can get to the ball on those dump-offs and make tackles. Their tackling has been superb in the first uh, couple of games. I would say the one blind spot right now or the one issue that is maybe a little bit concerning is their third down defense. Situationally speaking, they've always been great. You know, when it comes to red zone, two-minute, third down, the Patriots historically have always been an excellent defense. Right now, their third down defense is not that good, but I'm not that concerned. So this is a good defense, Brian, but is it a good enough defense to win you games when your offense is playing as poorly as the Patriots' offense is? And the answer is no. So they'll do, they'll be commendable, um, and they're gonna they're gonna they're not gonna beat themselves on defense. But do they have uh, the playmakers on defense? Do they have the guys to maybe make plays that are gonna be really game changing type of momentum plays? They do not. Ted, it's funny, too, you mentioned the third down defense because that Steelers game is a third and 10, then a third and 17 to Deontay Johnson, where he just he kind of runs right to the sticks and nobody's there to cover him. It's just like, I mean, it's third and 17. Get off the field. That was that was so aggravating to me. Yeah. But one guy that's jumped out to me because we thought, OK, year two, Christian Barmore maybe takes that big leap second year out of Alabama. And hopefully you get the Judon you got for the first 13, 12, 13 games of the season, not the guy after the bye week. But how about Dietrich Wise? He's been pretty impressive so far. Man, Brian, you've been watching your film. Um, Dietrich Wise, it's it's he 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 had a he had one of the best games I've seen him have in this last Steelers game. He was all over the field. You know what? This D line, Brian, is is pretty impressive. And I think one of the bigger, probably the biggest question going into into this season was the front seven. So many unproven guys, so many guys that you hadn't really heard of, at least from the linebackers. And you, you know what? In the defensive line, I don't know. Did it, did it really kind of blow your skirt up and get you that excited? Not really. However, we make fun, you know, we make fun of the Godchow kind of uh, contract, you know, in Bill's comments, Bill Belichick signed Devon Godchow to a big deal, you know, uh, at the beginning of training camp. And, and the way he talked about Devon Godchow was like he was, you know, the next coming of, of Warren Sapp. And <laughs> we're all kind of like, what? But look, he's been great against the run, Okay. These guys, uh, this this front seven, and particularly the defensive line, you mentioned Dietrich Wise, who had a great game this past week. But Lawrence Guy, um, Davis, uh, you know, Barmore, those guys are all doing a damn good job against the run and helping those linebackers out. So that's been a mildly pleasant surprise to see how well those guys are doing, particularly against the run. I'd like to see more more, uh, pressure and pass from pass rush. But um, I think so far, the front seven has exceeded my expectations. 
All right, and Ted, so I got to go back to the dynasty days of the Patriots. And of course, you were part of the first dynasty because really we look at it, it's two separate dynasties almost, right? Because you had that 10 year gap in between. So I remember growing up and hearing the whole Bloodsoe versus Brady debate should build. And there was a lot of people that wanted Bill to go back to Bloodsoe. I remember growing up listening to Sports Talk Radio, a lot of people wanted him to go back to Bloodsoe because, of course, in that AFC title game after Brady gets injured, Bloodsoe comes in and the rest is history. But being on that team, being in the locker room, what were those couple of weeks like leading up to the Super Bowl before Bill essentially makes the announcement that it's going to be Tom? Yeah, it was uncertainty. It was weird. It was eerie. It just um, because we we weren't sure. We weren't sure who was who Bill was going to start in the Super Bowl. Now, now Tom took over for for uh, for Drew week three after the Mo Lewis, you know, the hit heard around the world when Mo Lewis knocked uh, Drew out. Um, and so, you know, we you know, so Tom Tom did so much to help get us to that point. But then he gets hurt in the AFC Championship game, like you mentioned. Drew comes in and and does a great job. And so now all of a sudden we're thinking that maybe he's going to go to uh, back to Bill. And I and Drew did too. Now now I think Bill told him a couple days before the game that he was going to go with Tom. But I think even Drew did. I will say this, Brian. During that part of our part of the biggest success for that 2001 team was the guys like Drew that were professionals about their diminished roles. Um, in 2001, it was kind of the year where you started seeing Belichick flex his muscles and guys that were star players start to kind of, you know, limit their role, um, de-emphasize them. Um, and a lot of guys had to swallow their pride and, and be okay with it. And, and to, the, to their credit, they were, that, and that being Drew. Drew was not happy about the decision by any means, but he kept that private and didn't make it public. And I think that was a big reason why we were able to, uh, you know, to, to do as well as we we did because, you know, we didn't have guys that were, um, you know, uh, bitter and uh, and making it uh, harder uh, on on the whole operation. So I give Drew a ton of credit, but there was a lot of uncertainty, and I will say this: there was a, there was a lot of guys that were pro Drew. Everybody loved Drew, hmm. but there was something about this new kid. There was something about him. That we that he, he endeared himself to all of us because of his youthful energy and his he was crazy Tom when he when Tom got in there you should have seen him when he first was put in there um, the practices after that he took over for Drew in, in week three how excited he would get he was screaming he was enthusiastic and it's like you never see that in the NFL and it all kind of made us rally around him so there although we loved Drew we supported Tom. And we just weren't sure what Bill was going to do. And we were okay with whatever decision he made. But that was an interesting time, clearly, in this is uh, this franchise's history. Yeah, I mean, that is crazy. And you got to respect what Drew Bledsoe did for the team after not starting that game. And also, I mean, one of the best parts of that game is just seeing you guys on the defensive side. Just absolutely, anytime Marshall Falk was on the field, you guys <laughs> just teed him up, man. That yeah. guy must have been sore for weeks. Dude, well, you know what it was? Is Here's the thing. You know, it basically came down to... What is how much responsible? How much is Marshall Falk responsible for the offensive output for the uh, the St. Louis Rams? And it was like fifty percent, Brian. So Whoa. it was like, you know what? Here's a guy that's like fifty percent of your offense. How do we take him out? Like literally, just make life hell on him. And and we did. We hit him when the play was going to the other side. <laughs> you were hitting him. Like he wasn't even involved in the uh, in, in the apex of the play. Yet we're hitting Marshall Falk. 
and making it really hard on him. And, and clearly that was a great, you know, that was a great game plan for Bill, but we executed it perfectly. And uh, I'll give our, that team a ton of credit. No one, you know, we were 14 point underdogs, but we knew we had them right where we wanted them, man. And we got to play them earlier in the year. We lost to them. And it was one of those proverbial, you know, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what is uh, moral, moral victories, if you will, we lost, but we knew we had a chance to play them again that we would uh, we maybe have their number. And so it was the most relaxed I've ever seen a team going into the biggest game. And I played in four Super Bowls. Uh, when you're 14-point underdogs, the confidence we had was was pretty remarkable. And then, of course, it started, uh, it started what's been an unbelievable run for the last 20 years. That was unbelievable. I think later on today, Ted, I'm going to have to go and watch that game again because, I mean, that's... You're getting me fired up. I'm going to yeah. have to do the same. <laughs> That's like Patriots porn for the fans. It is, it is bro. No <laughs> All right, quite. that is Ted Johnson from NBC Sports Boston. You hear him on 98.5 The Sports Hub as well. Ted, great stuff, man. Thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Ryan, my pleasure. Uh, I'm happy to come on anytime, bud. Good luck to you. All right, bud. All right, thanks, Ted. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Brian Barrett with you. Great stuff there from Ted Johnson on everything going on with the Patriots. I always love going down memory lane, too, because, I mean, that Patriots Super Bowl against the Rams was just absolutely insane. I mean, they changed rules because of that game, but Isaac, Bruce, and Torrey, Holt, and Kurt Warner, and the Patriots come out, and they win that game. And of course, famously, or I guess infamously, John Madden said he would just play for overtime, and Brady goes out and leads the final drive. But I just remember, like, growing up in Boston during that time, and the whole Drew Bledsoe-Tom Brady debate, I mean, it was crazy. And it felt like a lot of the fan base, and we chatted with Ted about this, that they really wanted Bledsoe. And you heard Ted, he said, Guys in the locker room were team Drew, if you will. I remember my dad would tell me, no, they got to go back to Bloodsoe. They got to go back to Bloodsoe. And then, of course, Brady comes out and he has that, I don't want to say incredible game, but he didn't make a mistake. He was consistent. He led the game-winning driver. That was the start of the Tom Brady era with the Patriots. But it is fascinating just to look back at that. And you can look back and say, oh, yeah, that was an No, it wasn't an obvious decision. I mean, look, Drew Bloodsoe is statuesque at times. But remember, I mean, he did take this team to the Super Bowl after the 96 season. So it wasn't an obvious decision for Belichick. And imagine if Brady went out there and he just shit the bed, how bad of a decision that would have been for Bill. I mean, you got to have, obviously, conviction with these decisions. And Bill deserves a lot of credit for that. And mainly, Bill deserves a lot of credit for what they did to that greatest show on turf offense, which is just a remarkable performance. But I did want to get to this real quickly, Zidane Chara. Announcing his retirement, of course, six-time All-Star, won the Norris Trophy. First among active players in plus-minus, 29th all-time. We know sort of what the resume is and how important he was to the penalty kill and how important he was to that group of Bruins players. Also, this past season set the NHL record for games played by a defenseman. And you just think about some of the moments he comes back from the broken jaw against the Blues. Now, unfortunately... 
the Bruins would lose that game and they lose the series to the St. Louis Blues. But an all time great as a Bruin. And it really does kind of looking back now, it kind of sucks that he left prior to that 2021 season. Remember, after the bubble, he signs that one year deal with Washington. And one of the things I, I didn't really understand at the time was, remember, they brought back Kevin Miller. And Miller got $1.25 million. Chara got less than a million. And I'm guessing part of that was sort of resetting the hierarchy with the defenseman, right? Where Chara was the captain and they needed to move on to a new era of defensemen and all that. But it really didn't work out that year when it comes to that because Miller only played 28 games. Remember, not that Miller, they were building around Miller, but Miller was back on a one-year contract and he's a guy that already had multiple knee procedures. You knew that he was going to have an issue from a health perspective. He only played the 28 games and Chara played 55. So I really do wish that Chara was back on that team. Quite frankly, they could have used him that year. And unfortunately, too, with Miller, remember, he took that awful hit from, who was it, Orloff, remember, of the Capitals, and then he got injured during the postseason. Not to say that's his fault, but during the season, you could have predicted he was going to miss some time. And Chara has basically been very consistent in terms of being out there every night, even if he wasn't the same player anymore. It would have been better off having Chara around than Kevin Miller. Um, The other thing is you do wonder, too, about, remember, some of the stuff that came out about Bruce Cassidy and some of the issues that he had with some of the players. Now, I feel like the biggest issue and look maybe I'm underrating this because obviously the players were not happy right with some of the stuff going on with Bruce Cassidy I always felt like the biggest issue with the Bruins over the past couple of years has been the front office not the coach but clearly there was something going on there culturally with the coach that they weren't exactly seeing eye to eye on and you do think about the fact that now Krejci's back after Cassidy's gone well if Char is here in 2021 do things go differently it's just there's a lot of questions that what happens if Char is here for another year just from a chemistry standpoint and all that but just from a bigger broader thing with that sort of core group of Bruins now a lot of them are still here Marshot is still here Bergeron's still here as we mentioned Krejci is now back with the team so <laughs> some of the band is still here but that core group because I look at this Bruins team it's a playoff team but it's not a team that has a very high ceiling right I mean the floor is relatively high I would be surprised if they don't make it to the postseason for example but I don't see the ceiling being very high especially with everything going on with a pretty loaded Eastern Conference at the top I mean it's very top heavy but nonetheless the top is very very good but anyway just getting back to where this sort of group ranks right so if you look through that era It kind of has a feel of the 08 Celtics in some way, but they had more time, right? Because the 08 Celtics, they had the one championship, but it was only really a small amount of time together, right? Because really, after 09, Kevin Garnett was never the same player. They did have an opportunity in 2010 to win the championship against the Lakers. Of course, they come up short there, but that was really their only other chance. And I know they had the lead against Miami. I never thought that they were going to win the championship that year, even if they got by Miami. I didn't see that happening. I mean, I would have loved to see it, but I just didn't see it happening. So they really didn't have a lot of bites at the apple that Celtics team 09 got screwed by the Garnett injury 2010 was really their last great opportunity I put a lot of that on Doc in game seven I don't blame Perkins but nonetheless the Perkins injury but they didn't cash in on the second one right so it's a standalone championship for that group and that's kind of where the Bruins are at right because if you look at that era of hockey you had the Penguins going back to last decade or two decades ago I should say they have three they had back-to-back with Crosby and Mulkin last decade the Kings even got two the Kings, two Stanley Cup championships. 
the Blackhawks, of course, who were sort of the team of that decade, if you will, they got the three and one of those against the Bruins in 13. Now, I believe, of course, the more winnable series was 19. They should have beaten the St. Louis Blues. They were the better team. Chicago, I still believe, was the better team than the Bruins, although how it ends in game six, the two goals at the end there, that kind of sucked. And more recently, the Lightning have just won back-to-back Stanley Cup championships. So really, they're just another team in that era. They're not one of those great teams. They were really good. They were really competitive. They played in three Stanley Cup finals, but they only got the one Stanley Cup. And obviously, the banner hangs forever, and it's great to remember those guys, but they sort of would have gone into a different group if they had won the second championship, right? Because you think about, obviously, the Patriots are in their own category, but the 2000 Red Sox, they win in 04, they win in 07 last decade, they win in 13, they win in 18. They've won the most World Series since the turn of the century. So they're kind of in a different group than some of these other teams that have won the one World Series, right? Like recently, the Dodgers, they win one in the COVID year. The Red Sox are in a totally different category than that Dodgers organization. Now, we'll see if the Dodgers can finish the job this year. It looks like they're going to do it based on the record and all that. But I do feel like that's the one thing where all these guys are great Bruins. Bergeron, Krejci, Marshawn, and Chara. You just wonder if what one more would have done sort of for the legacy of the group. Because you look at Mulkin and Crosby and those Penguins teams differently. You look at those Blackhawks teams differently. You look at even those Lightning teams more recently differently. And it still feels like they have more meat on the bone with after losing the Cup last year. And it just feels like the Bruins, that one additional Cup would have put them in a different category. Actually, we're going to be back with you tomorrow. Special bonus episode. Alex Cora is going to join us. Of course, the manager of the Red Sox. So cannot wait to do that. We'll get into everything going on this season with the team. There are some positive developments as of late with this team, mainly Brian Bayo, who, of course, is on the mound tonight for the Red Sox. But we'll get into everything that sort of went wrong for the Red Sox this season and what it's going to be like going forward. Because think about this offseason for the Red Sox. Bogarts is a free agent. Rafael Devers is a year away from free agency. You have Nathan Avaldi's a free agent. J.D. Martinez is a free agent, right? Now, they did lock up Kike Hernandez, but a lot of question marks surrounding this team. So we'll get into the 2022 Red Sox and beyond with Alex Cora. Probably go down memory lane a little bit with Cora as well, because, of course, he did lead the team to the best record in the history of the franchise in 2018. And, of course, they capped that off with a World Series. Oh, and by the way, if you want to leave a voicemail, you can. Six one seven. 3966172 6173967172 6173967172 Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Shree for producing this podcast and we'll chat in a couple of days.